Heavenly Father, your powerful love abounds. You have raised us to life and joined us together forever in Jesus, your Son. We who were born in rebellion and disobey you, we rightfully deserve separation, death, hell. Christ, your Son, unselfishly gave himself to pay our penalty, and you offer the solution. We are to gratefully receive reconciliation in faith in your Son and receive your adoption as eternal children. Thank you for your grace and your love. Amen. Well, our scripture passage today uh, does open on a very somber tone. However, it finishes with great joy and hope. We start with the confirmation that all of us, every human born, is not innocent, then our environment changes us, but we are born in a state of self-focus, not aware nor connected or united with our Creator, Almighty God. For we truly are spiritual beings. We have physical bodies, minds, live in the real world, have social relationships. We have lives that we live wherever in the world we find us, and whatever the circumstances. We make decisions, deal with things, experience excitement, sorrows, pain, and happiness. But we do come to an end of our existence in this world. Our bodies stop functioning. We die. The Bible reveals that we are spiritual beings. We have an eternal spirit or soul, one that is designed or formed to be united with the eternal God, our Creator. And this is not what we see in this world. In Genesis, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Adam was created and experienced a deep, united relationship with God, our Creator, one with meaning and purpose as Genesis continues to expound. However, man, Adam, chose to disobey the law of God, which created enmity with God. The intimate relationship was severed, and we became enemies. This is where we start in the scripture, the reading from Ephesus today. So there's four points I'd like to cover and I'd like you to look for. One, our fallen, rebellious, law-breaking nature. Two, God's abundant love. God's redeeming grace. And four, our restored purpose. Point one was in Ephesians 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And earlier, as Bill read from Romans, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, nor can it. The King James translation renders this verse, because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it. So these two words, enmity and its synonym, hostility, both indicate a deep-seated dislike and suggest true hatred, whether it's overt or concealed. The meaning of enmity is not mere enemy. An enemy can be reconciled. Enmity cannot. It must be destroyed. But that is not simple that sin is enmity in its nature, but that sin is enmity against God. So here I'd like to define sins. We have our terms. And from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it, a transgression of the law of God, a state of human nature in which self is estranged from God as they are still today. And that's from a secular dictionary. The Hebrew and Greek words translate sin throughout the Bible revolve largely around two major concepts which are easily understood in a sports analogy. The first is that of a transgression. To transgress means to step across or to go beyond a set boundary or limit, such as a sports playing field where you have lines delineating the boundaries and the game is played within these bounds. When a player crosses over these boundary lines, he has committed a transgression. He goes out of bounds, and there's usually a penalty. Just as transgressing God's law, which is our boundary for living our lives, we sin or transgress the law of God, our boundaries. The second involves the concept to miss the mark. If a player aims for a goal and misses, how many points does he get? None. Just as um, this concept is going in one direction and straying off course to the side and never reaching the goal. So what is our boundary? As the Bible says, be thou therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are to obey God's law perfectly. Most well-known are the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus' Sermon on the Mount defines this as not just committing these sins or breaking these laws, but it's an attitude of our heart. A real hatred, a real lust, is equally as foul to God as actually committing these acts. So, back to our inherited state. What happened when Adam sinned 
is not just Adam doing the wrong thing and we get punished for it. Rather, it's something fundamentally changed in Adam's nature. He didn't just sin. He became a sinner. One at enmity with God. And since we are Adam's descendants, his children, this means we share in his nature. As in verse 3 of Ephesians, by nature a child of wrath. This means a child under the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God. Now, as you go through this world, most people do not view themselves as enemies of God. And the most common cause of this failure to accept God's word is a failure to accept that they have inherited this enmity with God. And in Romans 5.10, it tells us that before we were saved, we were enemies of God. And Romans 5.12 tells us how this happened. Therefore, just as sin came into this world through one man, Adam, death through sin spread to all men because all have sinned. Also in Matthew Henry's commentary, he describes our spiritual deadness this way. Sinners are dead in state, being destitute of the principles and powers of spiritual life cut off from God, which is the fountain of life. And they are dead in law, as a condemned malefactor is said to be a dead man. A state of sin is a state of conformity with this world we live in. So Matthew Henry brings out another two points that we want to consider here. One, our spiritual deadness, which Paul alludes to, and the sinful conformity to this world that we live in. And again, the word in the Greek for uh, dead is nekros, which literally means corpse or dead body. Since we know Paul is talking about a spiritual state, not our physical state, deadness refers to our spiritual nature. Paul chose this comparison very carefully because it accurately describes not only our nature without Christ, but also the impossibility of anyone recognizing or correcting his own condition. Just as a corpse cannot revive itself back to life, neither can anyone revive his own spirit back to life. As we read in Genesis earlier, only God gives life to our spirit. Also, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorites, said about our spiritual deadness, not in moral, not in moral sense, not in a mental sense, but in a spiritual sense. Poor humanity is dead. And so the word of God again and again most positively describes it. Not our, our deadness state. And in the letter from James, he says that friendship of the world is enmity with God. In chapter 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. That is to say, we accept the world's view as true or we do not take the challenge and stand for the word of God, his truth. We face persecution and hostility. That may be a reason. Now, the world has different views that are absolutely contrary to God's words. In the Beatles song, Imagine, sung by John Lennon, it begins with these lyrics. Imagine there is no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only earth and sky. Now, the Beatles earned a lot of money with this song, but I could tell you there are probably many that were led astray by this concept and this worldly view. Now, it is totally acceptable in our society today to reject biblical teachings and lean upon weak, failed human intellect, but people do so at their own peril. And as another great scholar of the Bible, Jonathan Edwards, so it is with natural man towards God. They entertain a very low and contemptible thought of God. Whatever honor and respect they may pretend and make a show towards God, if their practice, their life be examined, it will show that they certainly look upon him as a being that is but little to be regarded. The language of their heart is, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice? And the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They count him worthy neither to be loved nor feared. That is, I would have none. I do not desire any. I wish there were none. That would suit my inclination best. Let the world be emptied of a God. He stands in my way. And hence, the person saying this is an atheist in his heart. Now, you may feel that I've belabored this point um, about our state of sin and death apart from birth. Yet, I could easily fill a Pastor Keith Berth sermon on this topic alone. And the Bible, in God's word, does say quite a lot about this. But again, as promised, there is good news to be heard. Point two, God's abundant love. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up in him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You probably recognize this also from Paul's letter to the Romans. God showed his great love for us, for while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. We talked earlier about hostility and enmity needing to be destroyed. So also, a little further on 
in Ephesians. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. This is to say, destroying enemy, enmity with God. Jesus, in taking our sin and dying, taking it to the grave, it completely and permanently separates our sin and the penalty that was on our head as far as the east is from the west. Christ Jesus rose from the grave, conquering both sin and death. He then calls us to faith to receive this complete forgiveness, eternal life, restored relationship with him and God the Father through the indwelling and sealing of the Holy Spirit. This truly is something that really deserves our thanksgiving and celebration. Part of why we're here today to celebrate and honor and thank God for this gift. Point three, God's redeeming grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This passage here is really important to me. It so clearly says God's message for life, his love, and describes our utter helplessness to make effectual change in our life. When God finally called me to his saving mercy, I was experiencing a growing concern in the direction and purpose in my life. The analogy that I came up with is like being part of an ant colony. You do your job, you do it well, you're cared for, then you die, your body is discarded, and poof! Is that it? I knew there had to be more. And God had been revealing to me my real sinfulness. If there were some balance or scale to good and bad, I was seeing that it was being tipped not in my favor. Then God revealed this scripture that there was nothing I could do. It was all his grace and mercy. It was like a great wave crashing over me and revealing the Bible from Genesis creation to revelation restoration that it's all true. It's as real. I went for weeks. Nothing could touch me. The joy I experienced. I found an old Bible that uh, I had received as a young man in church and started reading. In evenings, tears streaming down my eyes. 
I found Christian radio on the way back and forth to work, but I had to pull over many times just for the wondrous change that God had effected in my life. This verse also captures in it, for me, a summation of the full gospel, what we know as the good news of Jesus Christ. One that God is merciful and therefore doesn't want to punish us because the Bible says that God is love and I have loved you with an everlasting love. But the same Bible, which tells us that God is love, also tells us that God is just and therefore must punish sin. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the soul who sins will die, and by no means will I leave the guilty unpunished. So there's the problem that we face, but God solved the problem for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us clearly that he, Jesus, is the infinite God-man. And as I read from uh, John in the start of the service, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He truly became our kinsman redeemer, a man. Christ came to earth, lived a sinless life, But while on earth, what did he do? He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and rose from the grave to purchase a place for us in heaven. And it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord had laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity or sin of us all. So Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross and now offers eternal life, a free gift, a gift that is received by faith. And this saving faith is not a mere head knowledge, nor is it like believing certain historical facts. The Bible says saving faith is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, that Christ himself actually did uh, die for our sins. So point four, our restored purpose. Now the Bible talks about works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even our good works, which are acceptable to God, have been given to us by God. We know the will of God in his word to joyfully submit to obey his command to love our neighbors as ourselves and to make disciples. And this is all done through him, his power, through the Holy Spirit. So we need to take great care in reviewing and discerning the things we do or work in our lives. Is this for the glory of God 
or is I'm doing this for my own recognition, my glory. For only the works that we've been given that bring glory to God Almighty are the ones that have power, meaning, and purpose. God has also uniquely created each of us and given us skills, abilities, and experiences in life to share with one another. The Bible also says God gifts us uniquely with a specific spiritual gift or gifts to benefit the local body, the church. And our God is a God of community, Father, Son, and Spirit. His very nature is love because He is love in a community. And He created us to be in that community with one another and in union with Him now and forever. So what is the intention of Paul, the author here, for us, the reader? In summary, we were born spiritually dead and can do nothing about our state. Only God's grace gives us life through Christ's death and resurrection. We are born again through faith in Jesus' completed work. Even the faith to believe is given to us as a gift. We are even giving, given the good works to do to bring glory to our God. All is from God, for we are his workmanship. Let us pray. Great and glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, in your love, you created us to reflect your love and glory. Through our failure of sin and rebellion, you magnify your abundance, grace, and mercy. We lift joyous praise, adoration, and thankfulness, and we long for the day that we are physically renewed in your powerful presence. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and continue worshiping God in song.